Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azben, our daf of the day, Masachat Sukkah, daf mem bet, page 42. With page 42, we end this chapter and we begin a new one. Before we end, we're going to have one more Mishnah to round it out. Mekabelet isha miyad bena umiyad ba'ala umachzirato lemayim b'shabbat. So we have here a woman who can get who can get possession of a little from her son or from her husband, and then return it on Shabbat, not to the son or to the husband as you might expect, but to the water in which it had been placed. Now this is an interesting phenomenon in many ways because even if you keep your little of an etrog in water, the odds on in this day and age, the odds on anybody taking a you know cut flowers, right? But even, you know, the lulav that's going to protect it and preserve it, it should continue to drink the water so it can be at its most, I don't know, ripe or, or flush kind of uh, presentation. Uh, we just don't do this on Shabbat in this day and age. But in the time of the Mishnah, the same way that they would um, actually bench lulav on Shabbat, as long as they didn't carry it to get it there, that was fine. Like it was, it was an acceptable thing to do. So here, the woman will take the lulav from her son or from her husband, meaning they will give it to, him, to her in her hand. And then she doesn't have to give it back to them. She can just put it back in the water. So Yehuda distinguishes here a little bit. He says on Shabbat, you can put the lulav back in the water. But on Yantif, not only can you put the, water, the lulav back in the water, you can even add fresh water to whatever receptacle the lulav is standing in so that the lulav will, you know, have fresh water and therefore also not will. And then, during Kholomoyed, you can even change the water. Now, and I would say, by the same token, the Shabbat policy is surprising. I would say that the Kholomoyed policy of that we need to be told that we can change the water is also a little bit interesting, because I think I would have just assumed that as a given, you know, it's necessary for the moed, it's necessary to keep the lulav doing well. Um, but the Mishnah spells it out. And then the Mishnah continues, and it, in the Gemara, this case, the case I'm about to mention, um, gets very interesting and a little bit complicated. A minor, meaning anybody who is under the age of Bar Mitzvah, who knows how to wave the Lulav, right, is then obligated to the Mitzvah of Lulav, not so much because of the obligation, the Mitzvah obligation, but for the sake of take, doing these Na'anuim, doing these, these movements, these wavings, and then of course the caveat seems to be it's really about chinuch. It's really about educating the child to be able to do this in a regular way. But the mister doesn't phrase it as you know because of to to train him well. It just says once he knows how to do it, he's obligated in it. Now the reason, of course, that we have such a caveat is because the idea that you could obligate a child in any mister, meaning that there's a key for which there could be reward and punishment, for example. Is, is really a, a stretch, right? Because that's exactly what it means, that a katan is somebody who is below the age of mitzvot, below the age of the requirements of mitzvot. Okay, now we're going to, you know, dig into the Gemara for a couple of minutes. Shita, to the Gemara, says, okay, the fact that the woman takes the lulav, that is obvious, meaning why would this be prohibited to begin with? Mahuditema, what's it really talking about? Hu'il, the isha, lav batiruvihi, ayma lotzkabel, kamashalan, indeed, that she can she can take it. So the the Gemara spells announces that since a woman is not obligated in the mitzvah of Lolo, you might say that she can't handle it on, you know, she, she's not supposed to handle the Lolo itself 
on Shabbat or Yantif. Maybe it's an issue of Moksa, for example, that she has no purpose for whatever. The answer is, don't worry about that worry. Indeed, of course, she can, she can be handed it. She can make her bracha. It's not prohibited. The Mishnah comes to teach us specifically and intentionally that it is permitted. So then the Mishnah gets into this, I'm sorry, the Gemara gets into this line from the Mishnah, the, the minor, the child, who knows how to do the weaving. So this is a very interesting distinction. The Chazafe, if he knows how to do the, oh, we've got a bright here. All of this is being quoted from the brighter. That if he knows how to do the ravings of the lulav, he should then he's obligated to do so. If he knows how to wrap himself, meaning to wrap himself in any garment, the implication is. And now we only talk about wrapping in the context of Khalif, but then, you know, back in the day, this was a more common, you know, phenomenon of garb. So if he knows how to wrap himself, then he's obligated in Tzitzit, meaning he needs to um, take on the mitzvah of Tzitzit to begin with because he knows how to, to do the wrapping, to wrap himself in the garment. He's more skinny now. If he knows how to keep stealing nice, right? Stealing a holy object in a different way than Lulav and simply by virtue, in fact, they actually have not only biblical virtue, but also the name of God written on the parchment that are inside the, the box of the spoon. So here, the Gemara takes a story, the brush that takes a step back and says, if he knows how to handle spoon, his father should locally should buy him spoon. Um, which, I again, I think that this is quite a, a much, much more dramatic statement um, than the others. And there's a discussion of, you know, in case should the father simply let him use his own, right, as opposed to getting him a whole new set, like, people, or can he lend him a spare, except for the people who don't really have spares to him. So the question of, you know, does he need to go purchase them seems to be the conclusion. Um, and then, of course, there's also a discussion of what's the need to, to keep the him properly, right, to make sure that they Basically, I think it really boils down to making sure that the bodily functions and the children are never really, never the twins from me. Um, because again, we're talking here about a kachan. We're talking about somebody who is not, who has not hit, um, the age of puberty, the age of physical maturity, uh, or bar mitzvah, if that's the whole point. And then lastly, uh, this writer says, um, your daily the bear, if he knows how to speak, um, avim lomdo torah ukriachma. If he knows how to speak, then his father teaches him Torah and Shema to say the fear of Shema. So I, I feel like the age of this minor is kind of jumping around because I think that the moment he knows how to speak and he can teach him Torah and teach him to say Shema, that kicks in at a much, much younger age than somebody who knows how to keep his body clean for the sake of stone, uh, for example. Uh, you know, it's a much more dramatic statement, as I keep saying. Okay. And then the Gemara goes on to say, well, what kind of Torah is going to teach somebody who just learned how to speak? Torah, my he, what do you mean by that? Amar Hamnuna. Torah, the verse is cited from Devarim, from Deuteronomy. Torah, Tivalano, Moshe, Morashaki, Rashi, Akhov. But the same verse that says, Moshe commanded the Torah to us, and it is a, an inheritance or a heritage for the congregation of Jacob, right? Meaning, this is the idea that the very fact that there is a Torah and there is a Jewish people and that we are connected is a fundamental thing that you can start teaching. And I do think that children often learn, learn this verse, whether to memorize it or as a song, right? 
And then, Kriyat Shema Mahi, Pasuk Rishon. The idea is that when you begin saying Shema, you start with the first verse. And that's enough. We're not saying that the, that the child is going to say the full service, or whatever you want to call it, of Kriyat Shema Amita, the nighttime Shema. But certainly, the first verse is, is easy enough to say, and it does kind of get imprinted on children even very, very young. Um, and uh, there's all kinds of stories about the value of that. Okay. Um, we're going to stop here from this part. There is more, but for our purposes, um, I think that is it, unless there's any of anything you want to add before you take on um, Parrick's ballad. Just this is a very nice, lovely passage that sort of goes through, you know, when do we start to teach children and really have them participate in meets vote? And I guess as a pediatrician, I like seeing this because it's sort of like developmental milestones, right? If they can do this, then we can expect this of them. So this is sort of like halachic milestones. So how so, I'm going to jump ahead. We'll love... <laughs> again. I'll say it again. This is the end of the third parak. Your Dana, take it away. Mishnah of the next parak, and this is the fourth parak of Sukkah. Uh, this is actually, it's a little bit of a head-spinning Mishnah because there's a lot of different numbers. Um, and this would be one of those Mishnahs where it needs a chart. You got to chart it out. Lulav, Arava, Shisha, Vashiva. So Lulav and the Arava, right, which is the willow branch the, that was taken and, uh, uh, you know, uh, was sort of circled with the, uh, you know, circling around the um, altar, the Mizbeach, could either be done for six or seven days. And again, this depends on when Chag fell out um, with Shabbat. Um, Hallel, um, right, saying Hallel and the mitzvah of Simcha, which here means rejoicing. Here, what we're talking about specifically is eating meat of a of particular korbanos of the shlamim. Um, this is done on all eight days, um, meaning the seven days of Sukkot and then also on Shemini Atzeret. So that's eight days. Sukkah, the Nisuch Hamayim, the mitzvah of Sukkah and the water libation that was done. Um, Shiva, those are done just for seven days. Hechalil Hamisha, the flute which was played in the Beit HaMikdash was done for five, Vishisha, or six days. Again, depending on when uh, Chag actually fell out and when Shabbat coincided either on Chalavoid or on Chag itself. Lulav Shiva Ketzad. So now the Mishnah is going to go through all of these examples and try to say, how do they get to all these different numbers? So how can Lulav be for the first for a full seven days, right? Yom Tov Arishon So this is something different than how we practice today. Today, if uh, whenever Shabbat falls out on Yom Tov, on Chag, we do not do the mitzvah of Lulav. But according to the Mishnah, we do, if it falls out on the first day. In other words, the mitzvah of doing Lulav is so important that it actually overrides Shabbat. The Gemara will talk about this. We'll discuss this probably a little bit more tomorrow. Um, and therefore, you would do it for all seven days. So as long as Chag and Shabbat, first day of Chag and Shabbat coincide together, then you're going to do Lulav for all seven days. Um, then it goes on to say, Bishar Kolayim Shisha. But the rest of the time, it's just going to be six. So in other words, if Lulav falls out on a Tuesday, you're, sorry, if the first day of Chag is a Tuesday, you're going to take Lulav then. You'll do Lulav on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 
the fifth day of Shabbat, you're not going to do Lulav because it's not the first day. So we're sort of seeing here, and I think that's why the mission of Rabbi Yochanan had to come before this, right, on two days ago, because we needed to know that everybody was going to take Lulav on all seven days, right? That was a possibility. But now we see this, you know, special exception that on Shabbat we don't, unless Shabbat falls out on the first day. A Rebbe Shiva Ketzad. So again, the same thing with the willow branch for seven days, right? Yom Ashvi Shal Rebbe Shachal Yobet Shabbat, a Rebbe Shiva Veshar Kolemim Shishat. So this is interesting. So for Shana Raba, right, that last day of Sukkot where we do all of the uh, many Hoshanos, if that falls out on the um, falls out on Shabbat, we would still do Hoshana Rabbah on Shabbat. But otherwise, it's always just going to be six days. In other words, if the seventh day occurs on one of the weekdays, whatever day Shabbat falls out, we wouldn't do our Rabbah and presumably we wouldn't do Lulav that day as well. Um, mitzvah Lulav, uh, sorry, and then uh, Mitzvah Lulav Ketzad, right? So now they want to say, how was the Mitzvah Lulav done in the temple, okay? How was this actually done, right? Yom Tov Arishon Shachag, Shachal Yom Shabbat. So if the first day of Chag takes place on Shabbat, so everybody would bring their lulavs to Har Habayit. Right? And so what would happen? The attendants would take all the lulav from them and would arrange them on a bench. Sorry. And the elders would put them in a chamber. They got a special place to put them. And then the court would sort of teach that people would say, anyone who gets my lulav, because remember, it has to be lachem, you need to own it, it's a gift. So in other words, there was a possibility because it was all laid out on this bench, you could have taken your, the wrong lulav, okay? But if you, you know, but on Shabbat, you just have to bring it before. And then you would, um, you know, you would sort of make this proclamation that in case somebody took the wrong one, it was still going to be okay. So the next day, everybody would come early, and then the attendants would just randomly throw the lulavim out. And people would get confused and basically take them from each other, and they would hit each other. In other words, there would sort of be this, you know, mass panic to try to get a lulav, because at this point, they're kind of all hefker. They're all sort of ownerless. You take which one you can get. So when the court saw that they all that this was dangerous, they instituted that everybody would take their lulav to their house, and then they would just fulfill the mitzvah there. So again, I think that when it's talking about at the beginning there, it's not totally clear to me. Is that talking about only how it was done in the Beit HaMikdash? Or is the end only talking about the, you know, or is it talking about in general, the six-day and seven-day thing? Um, even though today we don't do that if Lulav falls out, if the first day of Yantav is Shabbat, we don't take the Lulav. But we get this nice little color there about how it practically was done in the Beit And I think we see, like, it probably was actually very busy, a little confusing, um, you know, thousands of Lulavim laying around uh, without a good system of how exactly to keep track of who's was who. So, uh, you know, 
this is a, a nice little Mishnah that I think tells us a little bit about how Sukkah and Lulav was actually kept in the times of the Beit HaMikdash. I'm reminded of the, I think it was a Mishnah, maybe a Brita, that we just saw a couple of days ago about how they would bring their Lulav into to Shul on Erev Shabbat, and then they would have, right, then they would have, everybody would know which was which was whose. And I feel like, really? And yet, hear it again, hear it again. So they clearly had a system. Yeah, they seem to have had a system, but again, it doesn't seem like a. <laughs> the next day, this like sort of throwing out the blue love and feels very chaotic. So that's that's really my question, right? Because on the one hand, we've got a text that says, and everybody would know who's who's who's, and here they've got a, you know, they're going to throw them out so that what, so that they can preserve so that they don't mess up who owns it. There's something I feel I am not yet, come like I don't really understand what's going on here, I think. Meaning, I understand the text. I'm saying, I'm curious what the reality yeah, of it was. And the same way that I don't totally understand the first half of this Mishnah. Is that talking about how Lulav was done in the Medina, right? Because we just had that Mishnah two missions ago about Rabbi Yochanan. Or is it specific only to the Beit HaMikdash because the second half is only talking about the Beit HaMikdash. So I think it's interesting to see how sort of when we compare and look at different Tanaitic texts, does everything sort of have to fall into place together? Or could different texts have been written or talking about different scenarios and different times and places? Um, I'm not sure we have a good answer to that. I'm sort of just posing it as a question for everybody. Yeah, I like, I think that it's a, a I think the question stands. And look, we always talk about how we like to know the reality of what their lives were and how they kept these mitzvot. Well, that's our depth discussion for the day. Bring us to review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.